So this morning we come to perhaps the most sensitive and yet I would argue probably the most relevant, at least in our culture today, of the Ten Commandments as we continue this series as a church looking at the Ten Commandments. We come to commandment number seven, which reads this way, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we've been saying throughout this series, and you can see this sentence once again printed on the back of your notes. If you use notes, flip over there. Uh, This has kind of been the main theme of this series in the Ten Commandments. That's God's boundary lines, these Ten Commandments, are a gift. We really believe God gave these to us as a gift, and that by honoring these, by following these boundary lines, we will actually lead lives of greater freedom. Now, we come to number seven, and I'm going to go ahead and say this is the one where people are going to push back against and say, well, I don't think that's true. You know, we're dealing with the issue of sexuality this morning, which is the bigger issue behind the issue of the seventh commandment of adultery, and I think you probably agree with me that if you're on your notes, most people today believe freedom comes with no boundaries in our sexuality. Don't talk to me about boundaries and sexuality bringing freedom. Most people today, isn't this the message we hear? Every time we turn on the TV or whatever, boundaries, no. No boundaries is what's going to lead to greater freedom in this area. And I've been discovering uh, more and more that this is the mindset, not just of people outside the church, but it's becoming the mindset of people inside the church as well. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many people, you know, have come to me, both single and married, who essentially suggest that God needs to get with the times in their life. That these boundaries are just too difficult, too stifling, not even possible for us to follow in today's world. Now, before I address that, let me just give you a quick little history lesson here on the Christian faith. Many of you probably know this already, but Christianity was born during the time of the Roman rule, right? The Romans ruled the world. That's when Christ came. Now, let me just make a really long story short. The Romans' view on sexuality would make our culture blush today. You can research that uh, for yourself. It would make our culture blush today. In fact, when Christians were first bursting onto the scene, the Romans found two things to be completely awkward and weird about Christians. The first was how radically generous Christians were. There was this group of people who actually gave large portions of their time and income to the poor and marginalized of society. That was just unheard of at this time. And so they were like, well, that's kind of weird they would do that. Christians were known for radical generosity. The second thing Christians were known for at this time was for their radical purity. Here is a group of people living in the midst of Roman rule who say that sex is to be limited between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. And they looked at that and said, that is crazy. That's unhealthy. That's impossible. Does that sound at all familiar? Here's what's happened today. Many people come and say, well, times have changed. We live in the 21st century. It's time for God to get with it. This book that was written, you know, some 2,000 years ago, how could this possibly have anything to say about this issue today? I've thought a lot about the argument that that's making, and the picture I have in my mind is essentially, let's say, we say God has set his boundary lines here on this issue of sexuality. We're over here. What we're saying at that point is, God, we need you to come at least meet us in the middle a little bit. Whatever you said your standards were back here, we need you to come a little bit more towards us this way. Get with the times, God. Now let's 
separate our emotions and our feelings from this for a minute and let's think logically about that. I mean, when Christians first burst onto the scene, they were more out of step with their society than we are today if we are Christians, especially in this area. And yet, for some reason, that was not what they were thinking. They weren't telling God, you need to get with the times, God. You need to be more in tune with the Roman culture. Why? Why wouldn't they say that? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, according to Tim Keller, who's written extensively on this, they knew that this unique understanding of purity was one of the sources of the gospel's power and one of the sources of the gospel's appeal. And because they believed that, Christianity swept through society. You can read about it in Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. Now, that's one reason, but besides that, I think of another reason. Let's say somebody comes to my office and says, God needs to get to, with the times. And what if my answer, what would you think if my answer was, yeah, 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 I, I think you're right. I think God does need to change his boundary lines on that. You know what that would show? It would show what many people have thought about Christianity from the very beginning, that it is simply a human invention. So whenever I choose to change it, because Christianity is just my human invention, I think we talked about this in the second commandment, by the way, didn't we? Whenever I want to make God in my own image, we're just telling the world, listen, yeah, Christianity is whatever you want to make it. All religions are the same. It's a human invention. But friends, the second we start doing that, we lose Christianity. Yes? The second we tell God, whoop, come on over. We're no longer talking to the God of the Bible. The real question isn't whether we need to have God change his boundaries. The real question for us today is, what are God's boundaries? What is God's view on sex in the Bible? Now, I know I'm a long way from the seventh commandment right now. I understand that. But I really believe we have to understand the bigger picture, especially in our society today, before we can get into the specifics of the seventh commandment. So let me just talk a little bit more here. Besides what the Bible, besides what God says about sex, there have been two prevailing views about sex in our world. These have always existed. Always. One of the views was influenced by Plato and the Platonists who argued, you've heard this, right? The body is evil, matter, physical matter is bad, it's to be avoided. Hence, sex is a bad thing because it has to do with our physical body. So avoid sex at all costs. Now sadly, this view, I think, has been associated with the church now, don't you? I mean, that's what we're known for, man. Don't do it. Sex is bad. We don't talk about it. I, be, I guarantee you, many of you in this room right now grew up in families where this was the view. Sex is something we don't talk about. All I know is you just, you're not supposed to do it until you get married. But can I just tell you, that is not the biblical view about sex. That's the platonic view about sex. Now, on the other hand of that, we have uh, the, the view, the opposite extreme that goes like this. Let me ask you a question. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. That wasn't a trick. You eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. It's no different when it comes to our sexual needs. If you have an appetite that you need to fulfill, then you just satisfy that desire whenever and however you can. That's another view that, would you agree, kind of exists in our culture big time right now. I love how one writer described these two views as the prudes and the pagans. You got the prudes and the pagans. We've always had these two views. We still have them today, and yet neither of them are what God says about sex. Neither. In fact, if you're on your notes, God opposes both the prude and pagan view of sex. Now, what I would like you to do this morning is, if you got your Bible with you, 
Turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're still learning where things are in the Bible, uh, you can find 1 Corinthians about two-thirds of the way back. It's right after the book of Romans, right before 2 Corinthians. You're about two-thirds back. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we have some in the seat back in front of you here. You're going to be amazed what we discover uh, in God's words here because in 15 or so short verses, do you know that the Apostle Paul opposes both of these wrong views of sex right here in Scripture? In fact, when I hear people say that the Bible is outdated, it can't possibly speak today, let me just ask you, have you ever read Corinthians? I mean, you could take that church and plant it smack dab in 21st century America, and you would be talking about the same thing. So I want you to see something really interesting. Paul's going to address both of these views, starting in verse 12. It's really important when you read this section, you notice he's going to be quoting people at different times, and he starts off in verse 12 doing that very thing. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting what somebody's saying, you say. But not everything is beneficial. Again, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now check this out. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. Wow, doesn't that sound familiar? Who made that argument? The Platonists, right? Food for the stomach, we can do whatever we want. Physical matter, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want, right? It's, if I have an appetite, I meet it. Now, of course, Paul knows we're not talking about food right now. We're talking about something different. So he goes on to say to that, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. And that's the word in Scripture uh, for any sex outside of marriage, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do our bodies matter? Can we separate our spirits and our souls from our bodies? Not according to Scripture. It's all part of the same thing. It all belongs to Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? You see, that's what they were arguing. You think this society's messed up? This church was saying, it's okay if we go sleep around with prostitutes. Because my body is separate from my soul. It makes no difference. What does Paul respond to that? Never. Yeah, that's pretty polite, I think, in English. Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now here's the key to this whole ver- these verses, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Right here, Paul addresses the pagan view and he says, that's not God's view on your body. That's not God's view on sexuality. Honor God with your bodies. Now, unfortunately, what has happened so often in the church, we stop right there. 1 Corinthians 6, see? See? Sex is bad. But we have to read 1 Corinthians 7 because Paul then addresses the opposite extreme. Look again, he's quoting in verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Wow, what does that sound like? The prudes. Just avoid it. It's dirty. It's bad. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with their own husband. The husband 
should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What is Paul saying there? He's saying not only is sex permitted inside of a marriage, it is commanded. It is commanded. In fact, listen, if you've ever read through the Bible cover to cover, can we just be honest for a minute? The Bible's pretty frank and forthright about sex and marriage. There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to celebrating the sexual love of a marital couple. It's called the Song of Psalms. The church hasn't known what to do with it for years. <laughs> we don't. Ignore it. Oh, red flags. You can go to places like Proverbs 5, 5 and 6, which is a long warning against the, the adultery. That's what it is. It's a warning against adultery, the, the pagan view that adultery is okay. No, Proverbs 5 warns that. But right in the middle of this extreme warning of adultery in verses 18 and 19, it says that men should be ravished with their wives' bodies. God is not prudish when it comes to sex within a marriage. And why would he be? He invented it. He invented it. He designed it to take place in this relationship between a husband and wife for them to enjoy. I know some of you were raised to believe that sex is bad, but the bottom line is the Christian who really understands what the Bible sex says about sex knows that God is pro-sex in its place. And that's the key. Don't miss those last three words. In its place. Unfortunately, what has happened, like it has happened with so many good things that God has created, we have taken that good thing and we have perverted it. We have made it an idol today. And so not only does God speak against the prude view in Scripture, from front cover to back cover, Old Testament to New Testament, God also speaks strongly about the boundary lines that we need to have in this area of our lives. And it's a non-negotiable in Scripture. He's very clear about this pagan view that we can do whatever we want. Old Testament, New Testament, it says over and over, sex is to be between a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Non-negotiable. I didn't make this up. You can read it from cover to cover. It's God's standard. And like what the world says today, unlike what some versions of Christianity are saying today, sex is not an appetite that we just satisfy whenever we so choose, just like eating. That's not God's view. It is to be between a husband and a wife who are committed in a covenant of marriage with one another. If it's outside of that boundary, listen, if it's anything outside of that boundary, it's not God's view on sex. Period. Now, I used to hear this growing up in the church, and all I knew was like, don't do it. Don't do it. I grew up in that realm, right? And my question always was like, why? You know, why is this God's boundary? Like, give me some reasoning here. And I want to address that issue. Why I believe these are God's boundaries and why I really do, do believe it's a gift that leads to greater freedom. But for now, we're going to get there. For now, my question simply is, do we believe that the boundary God has given us in this area is really what's best for us? Do we really believe that? That it will lead to freedom? I do believe that. I do believe that, and I believe that's why God gave us the seventh commandment. In fact, if you're following on your notes there, the seventh commandment shows God's heart for marriage. It's what it's all about here, right? It shows God's heart for marriage. Now, 
You remember if you've been a part of this series, we had the kids come in that one Sunday and they were doing all the little hand motions to remind us uh, of all the Ten Commandments. You know, I, that first time when I was sitting in the service, I'm like, what are they going to do with number seven? <laughs> you remember what they did? How many of you remember this? Let's put up our seven fingers. I think this is so perfect, right? You shall not commit adultery. In other words, what is this symbolizing? God's desire to honor and protect it's about marriage. It's about protecting this thing that he ordained, this thing he created. I mean, what a wonderful symbol to remind us of. What does it mean to commit adultery? Well, the technical answer to that is, if you're following there, adultery is marital unfaithfulness. Marital unfaithfulness. Now, let me get even more technical. It's sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to. And so just as we saw, sex was designed to be a, between a husband and a wife in a marriage. This command forbids all sex outside of marriage. All of it. It's, it's the sum total of it all. I found it interesting this week in my study of this. Did you know that uh, the prohibition of adultery and other sexual sins is second only to idolatry in the Old Testament? And second to none in the New Testament. Second to none. God takes this boundary seriously. Now, of course, I just gave you a technical definition, and like all of these definitions we've been given in this series, you know, it's easy for us to sit back now and go, okay, well, I've never technically broken that commandment. Good for me. And we've been discovering week after week after week, haven't we? These commandments go so much deeper than that. They go so much deeper than just outward obedience. It's, it's, it's a matter of an inward reality. In fact, uh, just as we saw last week with Jesus and, and murder in the Sermon on the Mount, following his comments about murder, you know, taking that to a whole other level, Jesus says the same things about adultery. Would you read Matthew 5, 27 and 28 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now listen, that applies to women too. It's not just about looking either. What I really think, what I really think this commandment is all about, it's not just about the act of adultery, it's about protecting the intimacy of marriage. So anything that is going to break that intimate bond that is supposed to be between a man and a woman in marriage, we should avoid that. I just received a testimony uh, a couple weeks ago from a person in our church who knew I was going to be speaking on this topic and wanted to share their experience and that they had committed adultery and they want, in many ways, for us to learn from their mistake. And I hope you've come to realize, because this person's story is the same story I've heard over and over again, nobody goes out one day and decides, I want to commit adultery. That is not how this works, is it? It always starts way way, way sooner than that. It's you have a fight with your spouse, you get to work, somebody compliments you on the opposite sex, it makes you feel good inside, pretty soon you start pursuing that relationship a little bit. Wow, they're really uh, emotionally supportive, unlike my spouse. Oh, oh, wow, they really compliment me and believe in me, and pretty soon we have these feelings, it's all innocent at first, but then pretty soon, pretty soon, pretty soon, we get to a place where we don't even know what happened. That is nine 199 times out of 1,000 what happens in these situations, yes? I mean, nobody goes like, oh, I'm just going to go have sex with someone else who's not my wife today. No, it starts off back then. That's why this commandment is all about 
protecting the intimacy that is to be shared between a husband and a wife. That's spiritual intimacy, that's emotional intimacy, and yes, that's physical intimacy. This means there's no such thing as innocently flirting with someone with the opposite sex. This means you don't receive emotional support from someone other than your spouse if they're of the opposite sex. I'm not saying that can't happen and, you know, a, a woman, woman to relationship, uh, friends in, in those kind of situations, but not in the others. God wants us to protect this thing he created called marriage. And of course, Jesus, if you were falling on your notes there, says adultery begins in the heart. So it means we protect our heart. Adultery begins in the heart, so we protect our heart. I mean, listen, you want to talk about radical purity that the early Christians, Jesus took this to another level, didn't he? And again, I sat in church my whole life. I'm a PK. I heard the message from my youth pastor. I heard the message from the pastor. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And the question is, why? Why is this God's boundary line? How can I really trust that he wants what's best for me? And so this morning, I want to spend some time talking about why I think this really is a gift that God has given us. And by honoring it, it will lead to greater freedom, okay? Number one, because God wants to protect us from the pain of adultery. Can we just step back for a minute? God wants to protect us. He is our father. Just like if you are a parent, you want to protect your children, yes? God wants to protect us from the pain that is sure to come with adultery. Listen, you don't have to be a therapist to know. You don't have to be a therapist to know the miseries that come with adultery. Hollywood loves to make this lifestyle, this free and easy lifestyle, so appealing, yet they never show the other side of it, do they? They never show the shame and the hurt and the broken relationships and the pain and the harm. God wants to protect us from that. It's one of the reasons he gave us this boundary. I can think of at least five things that are harmed from adultery and other sexual sin. Don't tell me you don't agree with this. Number one, if you're on your notes, it harms marriage. I mean, that's obvious. When there's betrayal like this, oftentimes it leads to divorce, which is not what God intended for that relationship. I've learned from counseling that it harms self, You know what I'm talking about? Right? You, I just, talked, I'm, I just talked with somebody who lives with this shame and this guilt. And even though we sing, I'm, I'm a new creation, I'm not defined by that sin. And that is true. That is hard. It is hard to come to grips with in life. It harms children if there's children involved. You know, one writer said this. I mean, this is pretty strong. Infidelity tells a child that you are a liar and a cheat and that honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. Now, you might think this is just like some pastor, some radical conservative guy standing up here right now saying these things, but you can read all secular research you want, and they will come to the same three conclusions. Those three relationships are harmed. However, I want to mention two more that are directly related to our life together as Christians, and that is number four there, it harms the church. It harms the church. You know, Christians were known for their radical purity. But today, as more Christians fall in this area, especially pastors, what is the message that sends? What is the message that sends? It sends a message, we're just like the world, and we claim this gospel has the power to change us, but it really doesn't. And that's the fifth thing that it harms. Ultimately, it harms the world. 
Adultery will harm our witness to the world if we're not taking God's boundary lines on this seriously, isn't it? How can we proclaim this message that we believe is life-giving when it's not even life-changing? The people inside the place. Of course, nobody, nobody, nobody is thinking about these things when those moments of temptation come. We're in the beginning of those relationships, right? But what would, be, what would happen if we were just able to play it forward? When we come to those moments, when we come to those decisions in our daily life, if we just played it forward and believed, God really wants to protect me from harming these things. And I'm going to trust that he knows what's best for me. Now let me just say another word to this. Can there be healing in those relationships? You better believe it. We sang it. We sang it. God will restore the wasted years. Yes? God will restore the wasted years. He loves, loves nothing more than to redeem broken things, to restore broken things, to, to put us right back on the path of living. But he wants to warn us. He wants to protect us as our father. Second reason God put up this boundary is because God designed sex to be a seal of an unbreakable covenant. He designed it Sex to be the seal of an unbreakable covenant. Now what is a covenant? I've been saying that word a lot. That's a churchy word. But it's a beautiful word. It is a beautiful word. A covenant is a life commitment. And in this context, it is what takes place in the moment of marriage. In the ceremony when the vows are given. Listen, I hear people say all the time, well marriage is just some legal thing. I just fill out a document. No, not if you're a Christian. The document's a, a different thing. Marriage as a Christian is we stand before God, we stand before witnesses, and we stand before the person we are marrying, and we declare a vow of covenant, a total life commitment. I'm in this no matter what, and that takes place on the wedding day. doesn't take place on engagement day. It takes place on the wedding day. And God says, believe it or not, that it's only in that kind of relationship that the power of sex can really work. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration here. Let's just admit for a minute that sex is a powerful thing. I mean, it wouldn't be idolized in our culture today if it wasn't, right? Let's imagine it's kind of like this lighter fluid. I mean, it's hot, it's passionate, uh, it's fun. And so here's what our world has done. It's like, well, let's just, it doesn't matter. Like, let's just go for it. And so we light all these flames with all this lighter fluid all over the place, right? Now let me ask you a question. You probably can't see it right now, but what's going to happen to that fire, that passion? What's going to happen to it? It's going to burn out pretty quick, isn't it? And so what do I need to do? I need to put more fuel on it and more fuel on it and more lighter fluid. And I'll just be standing here squeezing lighter fluid until I turn blue in the face. And yet that's how many people have taken sex, right? It can never satisfy Sex, God designed it to be something that would build up a marriage, and yet it's being used to destroy marriages. Why? Because we forgot that if that's really going to work the way God intended it to work, we need to have the kindling and the fuel that can only come in the commitment of a marriage relationship. It's how he designed it to be. I'm not going to throw this log on the fire, <laughs> but I want you to picture it. It's gone. It's gone. But listen, how long would that last if this log of commitment and covenant was what was at the heart of this relationship. God wants sex to be a tool to build unity in marriages, not a weapon for destroying it. Listen, I always asked the question when I was young, you know, where does God say I can't have sex before marriage in the Bible? In that book, I was mentioning the Song of Solomon, which is all about celebrating the marital love of a, of a couple there. Three times in the middle of this book, 
all of a sudden, out of nowhere, three times, you get this statement. Let's read it out loud together on our notes. It says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What, is they, what are they talking about? But I love them. He told me we're committed to each other. Well, we're already engaged. No, no, no. Do not awaken love until it so desires. And when God desires it to be awakened is in that covenant of marriage. It is the seal. It is the seal when a man and woman leave their father and mother, cleave and become one flesh. Number three. This is the most mysterious and marvelous reason of all. I confess to you right now, I don't understand this completely. But here it is. It's unmistakable in the New Testament. Marriage is an analogy of God's covenant with us. Did you know that? Marriage is an analogy used in Scripture of God's covenant with us. Somehow, someway, the union between a husband and a wife has been designed to exemplify the kind of covenant relationship God has entered into with us as His children. In the same way that husbands and wives give themselves to one another, God has given Himself fully and completely to us. That's what a covenant is. You can see this all throughout Scripture, both both Old and New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, how many times do we read where God compares His relationship to the people of Israel with a romance between a husband and a wife, and when they sin, when they leave Him, when they forsake Him, He calls that spiritual adultery. He's straight up, you're, you're cheating on me. And then you get to the New Testament when writing about marriage of all things in Ephesians 5. Listen, Paul quotes from that verse I just mentioned in Genesis. It's a familiar passage. You hear it at weddings. He says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is he talking about right there? You can say it. It's okay. We don't have to be prudes. What are you talking about? When the two become one flesh, he's talking about sex. But then read out loud what he says in the very next verse on the screen. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What? What? I mean, you were just talking about how the married couple comes together in a covenant and it's consummated in this seal uh, that you designed it, and now you're saying this has to do with Christ and the church? Yeah. yeah. Now, this has major implications for our sexuality. Wouldn't you agree? Every time that I commit a, a sexual sin, I'm spiritual, spiritually desecrating the covenant that I entered into with God. This is exactly what Paul was writing about in those verses we read earlier this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, right? He says, our bodies, just as much as your spirit and your soul, were purchased by Christ on the cross for God. Just as much. So if you are in Christ, what does that mean for us? Who inhabits your body now? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inhabits you. You are covenanted together with Him. So just think about this. This is scary. Now everything I do, I bring God into it with me. It's as simple as that. Whatever I see, whatever I'm thinking about, wherever I go, whatever relationships I'm entering into, I'm bringing God's Spirit with me. I don't understand the mystery of that. But somehow God connects the covenant of marriage to the covenant he has with us. That's why he calls his church what in the New Testament? What does he call the church? His bride. bride. You know, as man, we don't like that. But 
I want you to think about the beauty of that picture just as a bride stands before her future husband on their wedding day and they exchange vows of covenant and commitment to one another. So has God given us his covenant and commitment on the cross and he asks us to do the same. Somehow, some way, I don't understand the mystery of it. But the marriage relationship is an analogy to God's covenant relationship with us. So listen, if that's why God gave us these boundaries, I at least want to learn how do I keep them? How do I make sure I'm honoring this the way God intended me to honor this? And there'd be a number of ways for me to do this, but what I thought I'd do as we close this morning, I want to talk about four people in Scripture we can learn from in this area. Is that okay with you? We can learn. So number one, we can learn from Jesus. That's always a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? Learn from Jesus. And Jesus said, be extreme in purity. Be extreme in purity. After Jesus said what he did in adultery, we read those verses on your notes there. He goes on to say this. Look up at the screen with me. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He goes on to say the exact same thing about our feet and our hands, right? If they cause us to sin, cut them off. Now, is Jesus saying literally, cut out your eyes? None of us would have eyes here this morning. None of us. None of us. What is he saying then? I mean, we all understand what he's saying. He's saying, if you want victory in this area of your life, there's going to be some extreme measures that need to take place. Amen? It's going to take some extreme actions. If you're falling on your notes, in my opinion, this means placing strict boundaries on our lives. Strict boundaries on our lives. Now, what do you do the minute I say strict boundaries? Right? So what I do, I see a sign that says, do not enter. Well, what? What's in there? I want to enter. I say, put strict boundaries on your lives. We're like, push back. Why? Because that's my nature. That's our nature as human beings. But listen, Jesus says, be extreme in this. So what does that look like? Let me give you a few thoughts on this. It means, number one, you don't meet one-on-one with a member of the opposite sex in private. We have a policy here at our office. You know, if you've come into our offices, we have windows on all of our doors. And we will never meet one-on-one with a member of the opposite sex unless somebody else is in the offices with us. Is that too extreme? Oh, come on, give me a break. No, no, no. no. Even the appearance of those things can be dangerous. It means dressing modestly as Christians. It means... I love this. We were talking about this week with my wife. It means protecting your spouse if you're married on these things, right? You know, what is your wife wearing as she walks out the door? What's your husband watching right now? And gosh, we push back against this, don't we? You know, one of the things my wife will do, we'll be watching TV and she'll say, look away. Look away right now. Or she pauses the button. Now, what would my response, what should my response be to that? Well, how dare you tell me what to do with my life? No. She is doing this right now. And I want to honor that. And I want to respect that. She knows what's on the TV right now. I'm not going to look at that. A couple other ideas here. It means, hey, how about not subscribing to those TV stations that you know are going to tempt you late at night? It means getting that filter for your internet. I mean, the numbers are just crazy right now. Even men in the church who are addicted to pornography. Over 50% of men. 
Listen, get a filter, and not only that, take it a step further and get an accountability partner. Maybe your wife, maybe someone of the opposite, not the opposite, of the same sex, a friend, <laughs> a friend who will actually check on your internet use regularly. You give them permission to do that. Jesus says, cut it out of your life. It means not engaging in those Facebook conversations with members of the opposite sex that you think are so innocent, but deep down, if you were to peel it all back, you know they're meeting an emotional need right now. It means not reading the romance novels and watching the TV shows that glorify sex outside of marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. What are we left to watch? What are we left to read? That's the sad state of our world right now, isn't it? Job, who was an upright man, the Bible says, said, said this about set this boundary in his life. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, obviously, Job could not stop sexually attractive things from happening around him. Now, we can't do that either today, right? You drive down the street, there's going to be a billboard, there's going to be TV commercials, there's going to be this, this. We can't stop that. But I love what Martin Luther said about this. He says, while you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, you can sure stop them from nesting in your hair. That's brilliant. You've heard it said this way, you can't stop the first look, but you can sure stop the second one. I could go on and on. Do you feel like I'm being too extreme right now? I've sat with enough, especially younger people, who at this point in the conversation are rolling their eyes at me. Oh, give me a break. Right? And listen, I have no power in and of myself to convince you of this. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. But if Jesus said, be extreme in purity, if that's what it's going to take, then I'm going to go for it. I'm going to agree with what he said, and I'm going to do that in my life. Number two, learn from Joseph. Learn from Joseph. Be aware of God's presence. Many of you know Joseph's story. He was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. He got this great position working for this high-ranking official. The only problem was this high-ranking official's wife had the hots for him. And day after day would try to seduce him and seduce him to come and commit adultery with her. Finally, Joseph blurts out these words. Can we read these out loud together on our notes? Joseph said, How then could I do such a wicked thing against God and sin against God? I'm sorry. Notice that last part. Not sin against my master, but sin against God. And he fled. This is exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians. Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Are you aware of that? That everywhere you go, God is with you. Everything you're looking at, God is looking at. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. Joseph knows all that so he won't sin against God. He flees. What difference would it make in your life if you really believed that? God was always present with me. God is always present with me. He's present with me right now. Would I watch this show if Jesus was on the couch with me? Would I be engaging in this relationship if Jesus was standing right next to me? Would our lives change? I'm going to go ahead and say all of our lives would probably change, right? Practice divine awareness of his presence. Number three, learn from Solomon. Meet the needs of your spouse. Meet the needs of your spouse. Now, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. Solomon is not somebody we want to learn from later in life when it comes to marriage, right? I mean, the, the guy failed miserably, miserably. However, when he wrote Song of Solomon, Song of Songs it's also called, we believe it was early in his life, and also we believe that every book in the Bible was inspired, inspired, written by the Holy Spirit, even though it was written by sinful people. But in this book, he talks about marriage. 
And he talks uh, this picture about each partner selflessly and joyfully giving of themselves to the other. That's what it, it's all about, right? Just this selfless love, this joyful love. Now listen, I'm not talking just about sex right now. This means every aspect, every need that your spouse may have from you, spiritually, emotionally, and yes, physically, it means we are selflessly put, giving ourselves to that person in order to make sure this is happening. In order to make sure this is happening. We make our spouse a priority. We, this requires sensitivity, communication, uh, all the above, all the stuff you go to marriage counseling for. This is what it calls for, but ultimately at the heart of it, it calls for selflessness. It calls for selflessness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, don't deprive one another because if you do, you will become vulnerable. He knows. Isn't that where the problems start? Isn't that where the problems start? I can't overstate the importance of this enough. It is vital that you know if you are married, the needs of your spouse, and you do your best emotionally, spiritually, physically to meet those needs. Now listen, is this easy? This is hard stuff. In fact, it's impossible. It is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit at work. I mean, marriage is a ridiculous idea. It's ridiculous. You take two selfish people. Can we just all say we're selfish? Say, I am selfish. We are all selfish. I am selfish. And you take two selfish people and you go, hey, let's make this thing work. And you just bang and bang. And Hopefully what's happening, though, is you're starting to form each other and shape each other. And pretty soon, you know how a diamond becomes a diamond? It's through that friction. And hopefully that's what can happen in a marriage. Uh, I'm going to tell you how does that work. How does that even work? How do we stick with this? This is it. It's the only way. By God's grace and by this covenant of commitment we made to them on the day we declared our vows to them. Friends, if you're struggling in this area right now in your marriage, let me recommend a resource. Tim Keller and his wife wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I know you've read marriage books before and they're all the same. This is not the same. This gets to the heart, the heart of God's purpose and design for marriage and it has a lot to do with this stuff. All right, number four, learn from David. Repent and be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. I'm going to go ahead and say most people even outside the church are familiar with David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. It was a complete mess, wasn't it? And in the whole thing, the only thing that David did right is that he repented. He called sin, sin, and he turned away from it, and he received God's forgiveness as a result. Now, I'm going to bet in a room this size, some of us have been, had sweaty palms and churning stomachs in this message this morning. You've fallen in this area. You've fallen in this area. And if that describes you, I want you to hear these next words very carefully. God's grace is always bigger than our sin. God's grace is always bigger than our sin. Jesus' blood wasn't just for some sins. Jesus' blood was spilled for all sins, and he's willing to forgive even the worst of sinners, which is what Paul called himself. He will always find a repentant heart and give mercy. But listen, the whole idea of repentance, it's not a word we like saying anymore, is it? It sounds so harsh, but the whole idea of repentance isn't just saying, I sin and then go on sinning. Repentance is saying, I've sinned, I'm going to turn from that life of sin. I was walking one way, and I'm going to go walk another way. I'm going to be intentional about that, right? It means I'm ending that relationship. I'm not looking at that website. I'm not engaging in that conversation anymore. That is repentance. You remember the story, my favorite, one of my favorite in the Bible, of the woman caught in adultery. She comes to Jesus. Does Jesus condemn her, friends? 
No, forgives her because he senses in her this repentant heart. She is not condemned. The people walk away. Great story, but what are Jesus' last words to her? Now go and leave your life of sin. You're forgiven. But repentance is now go and leave your life of sin. So friends, that means whether it's a relationship with a computer, a TV, or a real human being, repentance is putting an end to it. It's never too late to start this, by the way, is it? It's never too late to start this sexually pure road, right? God restores the wasted years. He is a God who redeems, who revives. But we can start today. We can repent and be forgiven. Now, here's the question I asked in the beginning, and I want to ask us again as we close. Only you can answer this question for yourself. Only you. I can't do it for you. Your neighbor can't do it for you. Your mom can't do it for you. Your dad can't do it for you. Your wife can't do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. Only you can do it. And the question is, do I believe? And when I say believe, I'm not just talking about in my head. Am I willing to shape my life around this? Do I believe God gave us this boundary because he knows what's best? It may not be popular message today, but I believe that. I believe that. And my prayer this week here, honestly, I've been praying some bold prayers. If the early Christians could be known for their radical generosity and their radical purity, why can't we be known for the same today? You think that would make a difference in this community and in this world if we were people of radical purity? I think it would. I think it would shine forth the glory of God, which is our goal, isn't it? As his bride and his church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are not known for our sin, but we are known if we are in Christ as righteous and holy in your sight. And yet you also have challenged us this morning with truth. You've spoken grace, but you've also spoken truth. We want to live lives of purity, and the only way we can do that is by walking in your spirit and by walking in accountability with one another. We offer ourselves to you now. We commit again. You have entered into this covenant relationship with us. You are faithful, Lord. We are so unfaithful to you. We confess that. But we want to commit to it again this morning. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We know that in our bodies we represent the very temple of the Holy Spirit. We carry the temple of the Holy Spirit with us. So we do that fearfully with trembling, but also with great hope and joy. Amen.